In a world where it seems totally normal to listen to a podcast about the Toronto Argonauts, it's the X's and Argos Podcast. Welcome to the X's and Argos post-game reaction podcast brought to you by Funny Bone Broth after the Toronto Argonauts escape with a win that they should have had a few minutes earlier. The final score, 31-29. And maybe the most important takeaway is that the Argos are now in the playoffs. And I guess that's all that matters, but man, we have a lot to discuss. Ben Grant here, joined by JB, as always. JB, that game was nuts. I don't know if the first three quarters were as crazy as I'm remembering it, but that last quarter was bananas. It was not. It was not a great game. Uh, It's nice to be in the playoffs. We both predicted that they would be. And that's a huge step up from being one of the worst teams in the league. So everything aside, I think it's important to recognize how great a job they did putting together this team to to make them competitive. Uh, But this game was a bit depressing. Well, it was such a weird mood in the post-game press conferences because usually it's celebratory after not only a win and keeping the home winning streak alive dating back to 2019. They haven't lost a game for over two years now on the calendar at home at BMO. And they clinched a playoff spot. Usually in the locker room, it's it's celebratory. It's it's champagne. It's it's people laughing. And there was none of that. The postgame press conference was it felt like they had just lost 60 to nothing. That was basically the mood from from everyone that was brought in, starting with Coach Dinwiddie, because they just they tried so many different ways at the end to throw that that game away. And BC wasn't having any of it, fortunately. So they escaped with the win. But that was such a weird environment in that post-game press conference no it 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 is nice that the team feels bad i think that's a good sign um but they didn't they almost spilled spaghetti sauce all over themselves but but let's stay somewhat positive they managed to avoid it yeah, there's some good uh, things that I want to take out of that because I know, and we'll talk about this when we get to the end of sort of our, our game recap, but there's a lot of heat right now on Coach Dinwiddie. A lot of people on social media are outraged at what went on at the end of that game. And I would like to defend him a little bit. Uh, some parts are harder to defend than others, but I do think he needs to be stood up for here. And I, I want to do that. So we'll get to that when we get to that sort of stage of our recap. So we start things off. Field conditions for this game were, from the beginning, uh, a little bit questionable, but the field actually, I thought, held up quite well early on. There were way more players than usual out there testing their cleats, seeing what the traction was like, and it was really good. Considering the amount of rain that we've had in Toronto over the last few weeks, I I thought the, the... Playing surface was in great shape, Uh, you know, being one of like a grass field, especially at this time of year, knowing that there have been soccer games on it. And, uh, you know, just with all the rain, you would expect it to be really torn up. And and it really wasn't. Uh, And I think players were pretty surprised to see how good the field was. There was only one play where it stood out to me that that the playing surface was at all involved. And that was just this. It was a second down play fairly late in the game. DJ Foster went to go run a Texas route out of the backfield. And when he went to cut, 
his footing sort of gave out. It ended up being a, a pretty tough contested catch that he couldn't bring in. But that was it. Aside from that, I didn't see slipping and falling. There wasn't mud all over the place. And in years past, at this time of year, you expect that on a grass field. So playing conditions held up. The rain largely held off. There was a drizzle, and that did play a factor. Uh, McLeod Bethel-Thompson, after the game, talked about some of the overthrows that we'll get into. And he wasn't making excuses. He wasn't really looking for an out. But he, he did sort of mention that there was some inconsistency in the ball where you're kind of expecting a wet ball and you throw the ball with a little bit more force sometimes when you're expecting there to be a bit of a, a slippery grip. And a couple of times he, he didn't have it, but the ball was in great shape and it ended up getting fired way over someone's head. And I think we saw Michael Riley experiencing the same issues on the other side where he continually fired balls long and overthrew people. So that did play a factor today. But yeah, for the most part, the weather was good. The field was good. The only other pregame thing that uh, I was sort of interested in was Lucky Whitehead. And I wondered how much of a factor he was going to be in this game because we didn't expect him to play earlier in the week. And so when we found out for sure he was going to be playing, that kind of changed a little bit of how we looked at this game. I was really surprised. Now, of course, it turned out he was just exactly what people thought he might be, which was a decoy. And once they realized he was a decoy, he stopped pulling double coverage and really turned into a non-factor. But you could see how he affected the defense, uh, you know, in that first quarter. So really, I'm, I'm very happy that we were able to, uh, to get away from BC with him because he, he clearly changes their entire team in terms of the speed that he has. Um, it was pretty terrifying. So I was, I was happy that he was not an active player. Yeah, he was backing up the safety. Uh, Butler was was way back there early on in the game. What they started to realize, it, it wasn't that they weren't going to throw to him. It's that they were really only going to throw to him deep balls that uh, in which he was on the quarterback's left. Uh, because that was going to be the, those are going to be the passes that he was able to, to, to bring in. Now, they did throw a couple faster passes, like a couple of passes with heat. I couldn't tell how many of them were sort of just to keep the defense honest and how many of them were really an attempt to get him the ball because they they weren't able to connect. There was only one pass that he caught that I thought probably really didn't feel good uh, on his hand that is still healing. There was there was an out that he had that came in at 100 miles an hour. He caught it with, without any trouble. I uh, was able to secure it, bring it in as he was going out of bounds. It was a, it was a great catch. I'm not 100% that he held on to it at the end, but it wasn't reviewed. And, you know, other than that, he really wasn't used. So, yeah, I think that was the plan is let's get him out there, see if we can open up other guys. And it did work early on. Brian Burnham, who I don't think needs any help beating the Argos. He's done that on his own enough times. But it opened up space for him at that uh, that boundary side. Uh, There was a lot of room when you've got Lucky clearing out a, a ton of space. So, yeah, it was... It was good that he didn't become a factor because if this is a fully healthy, lucky Whitehead, that game maybe finishes up differently. Yeah, I mean, it it definitely was part of um, a poor night for the secondary. I, I thought it was the secondary's worst night of the year. Um, that his passing percentage wasn't very high, but the you know the Argos lead the league in passing touchdowns against, and you know there were just way too many one-on-one deep passes that that were caught today it it clearly uh 
is a weakness of the defense um, that's you know going to need to be addressed. See, I didn't feel they played as badly as as you saw it. I know we often it, it depends on sometimes where you're sitting, and you know my view is very different from your view, and we sometimes interpret the game a little bit differently too. But I thought the I thought the secondary was okay, mm-hmm. um, not great, and certainly they gave up some plays. But you know that like that that touchdown pass to Burnham, I I don't know if you could have had better position, maybe a little bit better, but. It was just, you know, well, one of those I mean, situations where Burnham sometimes makes those crazy sideline catches in the end zone, and he made another one of those. They, they didn't let up a, a ton of passing yards. 290. It's not yeah, but that's, crazy. that's not unheard of in the CFL. No, it's it was okay. And, I mean, the rain helped. I, I thought it was okay. But, but, look, if you lead the league in passing touchdowns in the air, it's a problem. Right? Yeah, I like, can't argue that. Like, Winnipeg's given up, like, two. And we've given up like 21. <laughs> to be fair, I think they've given up three. But yes, that still right? stands I mean, as making your point. Yeah, like it's it's a problem. I agree those were well-thrown balls. Um, but, you know, it's a high bar. I mean, what can I, you know, I know they get paid too and they make plays, but it's a high bar. It's not a try-hard league. You know, if you're a DB and you got one-on-one and you're in the end zone, it's your job to play hands and get, and knock that ball out. And if you don't, then you're going to be held accountable for it. Let's go through our game summary. So the game started off really on a high note on that first series. BC comes out and throws an interception almost immediately. Jeff Richards picks off a, a ball that just hung in the air a little bit too <laughs> long. Thing, well, the good thing he picked it off. <laughs> it, it, he was beat. Uh, <laughs> he was beat on that. that there's, a, uh, I guess, a post route coming from the boundary side. But that ball just hung up in the air. It looked like there was wind, although there wasn't. There didn't seem to be any wind, really. Uh, uh, no, I shouldn't say any wind. There was some later in the game. Early on, the the flags weren't blowing. There wasn't much out there. But that ball hung in the air. Richards cut underneath it and was able to return it for over 40 yards. He was uh, finally pushed out of bounds, I think, at the, at the BC 25-yard line. And that is what led to that first touchdown from the Argos. Just uh, a... You know, a, a beautiful uh, pass from Bethel Thompson to Devaris Daniels. Uh, this uh, it's kind of like a a double move uh, cut to the inside that Daniels made. It was cool, kind of talking to him after the game about his philosophy on that route. So he runs upfield uh, about 10, 15 yards. No, I guess it'd be about ten yards upfield, and then he makes two steps hard to the outside, and then cuts back inside. So it's sort of like a, a deep slant, but with a, a couple of yards to the outside. And I asked him about that route, and he says they've run that a ton of times, but he runs it differently each time depending on the coverage he sees, which a lot of people do, but but not all. And Deveris is very conscious of like, what do I have? And that's going to dictate how I run this route. So he saw he had a safety over top of him. He had a linebacker underneath him. And he knew that because the safety had an outside shade, he could really set up that inside space um, from the from the shallow guy if he took two hard steps to the outside. So he took those steps to the outside, linebacker bites on it. The safety was already outside. And then when he kept back in, there was just nobody. And it was such an easy throw for Bethel Thompson. So that put the Argos up 7-0. And, uh, and the first quarter really was going the Argos' way. They added a field goal. And then that Brian Burnham play that we're talking about, 32-yard uh, pass from Michael Riley. He just put it in there beautifully. And just to see, 
the this sort of stunned reaction of the Argos defense because the coverage was good. Uh, it was it, just from like Jalen back there covering wasn't expecting Burnham to get the ball uh, because he thought the coverage was good and he hasn't been around for the Brian Burnham show over the last few years being new to the CFL. I don't think he was maybe aware of what he was in for, but Burnham always puts on a show against the Argos. I would guess too that it's it's still an adjustment for him. He's an NFL quarter uh, cornerback, and that CFL end zone, <laughs> there's a lot of yardage back there. So in the NFL and American college, when you think you've run a guy out of the play, you know to get that depth of like oh there's still more yards. Uh, I'm I'm sure will will be a, a, a something that he has to try and adapt to. And I think as well, that was an opportunity for Jalen Collins to push Burnham out of bounds while he was in the air. And I think, again, there's so many things going through his head at that moment. I think probably the shock of the ball actually arriving and Burnham bringing it in. But yeah, if you're right on the sideline like that and the receiver's coming down with the ball, that's a great opportunity to push him out of bounds so he can't come down in bounds. Yeah, it it was a great throw. It was a great catch. But, you know, from a professional point of view, you'd like your DB to play through hands there. The second quarter was okay in terms of the scoreboard, but man, I was so frustrated with the Argos defense. Three straight penalties led to the next Lions touchdown. So there was an offside to start. This is three consecutive plays. So first of all, Dexter McCoyle jumps offside. I wasn't even sure on that. I felt he got back. I thought he did too, but, but it's I one of those things where it's, it's the flag gets thrown almost every time when the right, player jumps and comes back. I felt what happened there is that there was a bar card count and McCoyle reacted, and that's what the referee did. He heard bark and jump. But, man, when I watched it, it, it felt like he got back. Like, he definitely jumped on the bark, but I, I didn't think he I didn't think he was offside when they snapped the ball. But anyways... I agree with you and that, but it's always called. And on the other side of things, I felt like BC receivers were offside about 10 times during this game, sometimes oh five God. yards downfield. I'm like, what I kept is looking happening for the flag. here? Like, like, where's the I'm flag? Like, what? like the, the, they stab, like, the guy's gone. I'm like, that's not close. They In the CFL, they cut them slack because certainly you can't have the game stopping for 42 offside calls. I understand that. But if your guy's 10 yards down the field when the ball is snapped, I, I couldn't believe that. Was, it's so funny you say that. There were there were at least three or four times where it was egregious. Yeah, exactly. And so to follow up that, that offside that may not have been an offside, then there was a roughing the passer call on Edwards, uh, which the reason, the reason I knew that this was late, I didn't actually see the play. But what I saw happen was I saw Michael Riley throw the ball. And then I was watching the coverage downfield. And then I heard this, oh, from the crowd. So I, I assume that's when the hit took place. So that I, one, I guess, I, was late. I thought it was questionable, too. Like, really? To me, when you watch it on replay, it was bang, bang. He put his shoulder. It was a hockey hit. He put his shoulder right into his sternum. So it wasn't head to head. Um, it wasn't helmet to helmet. He he stepped right in, and m- maybe you know Berno, maybe the the quarterback's head snapped back because um, it was a hockey hit. But I don't know. Look again, the the broadcast just blew past it. But to me, it looked bang bang, and it was a and it was shoulder to sternum. So I, I you know I'm like you know I I disagree with that one too. I mean I'm not a a homer when it comes to calls, but I thought both those calls were. Were iffy, and I thought the third one was the iffiest of the three. 
the face mask. So on that third one, Kresden Butler gets called for a face mask penalty. I think that was that on. I think that was on Johnson. Uh, Riley completes a short pass. I think it was along the line of scrimmage, and Shaq Johnson gets tackled almost immediately. I had no view of that play at all because that was going away I, from me, so I couldn't see. I didn't think it was a face mask. It looked like he just had his hand sort of on the face mask. But I, you know, on that one, Butler made a hash of that tackle. Like there was absolutely no need to have it be such an ugly tackle and have your hand anywhere near his face, like. I you know I don't think he face masked him, but Butler absolutely left himself open to that call. So, like I can accept that one. That was just a, a weird tackle, like uh, you know, an uh, arms reaching, hands grabbing tackle, as any DB coach will go crazy about. So, thirty-five yards in penalties later, Michael Riley connects with Rhymes for uh, an eighteen-yard touchdown, and it, suddenly Toronto is trailing, and it just didn't feel like a game that they should be in which they should be losing. Like that drive was entirely built on penalties. There really wasn't anything else. And then and the, the first touchdown to Burnham was just one of those things where, well, that's that's Brian Burnham. Uh, and now suddenly the, the Argos are, are down four. Now, they were able to bring themselves back uh, within... Oh, no, they, they end up taking the... Did they take the lead? Yeah, they took the lead going into the half because they ended up with two Boris Beattie field goals. And maybe we should pause for a second just to acknowledge the the greatness of Boris Beattie in this game. Five for five on field goals. He had two right at the end of the second quarter there, one of which was from 52 yards away. Uh, he had two from over 50. But to go five for five when your counterpart on the other, on the other side, on the other team uh, in Camacho is 0 for 3, Field goal kickers were the difference in this game. And I feel bad for Jimmy Camacho. That long flight home is going to seem that much longer going over three when you lose uh, in overtime by two points. Yeah, my my CN Power nickname, I wouldn't say has lit the world on fire. Um, but I, I believe Boris DeBoot might have a better chance. And <laughs> I think Boris DeBoot earned it tonight because he was just a killer. All night, five for five, two of them over 50, just just ice, um, an absolute weapon. I think it, it uh, you know, he was, again, one of the MVPs of the game, really such probably the second best offseason signing the Argos had, um, you know, after McCoy. Yeah, he played a great game, and he's deserving of a much better nickname than Boris the Boot. It sounds well, like Boris a Capone hitman or something like that. Well, that I, I disagree. The boot. Yeah, Boris the Boot from uh, <clears throat> Guy Ritchie fame. Yes. So we go into the third quarter. Argos are up by two. Uh, they extend the lead. Uh, Boris Beatty ends up kicking for a single that was so close to being out at the one. I actually thought initially it, it had hit that corner, and I've seen him in practice again and again going over those he's so good at those coffin corner punts but it just went a little too far i picked up the single and then he added another 50 yard field goal argos are up 2014 they felt very much in control and then with two just over two minutes left in the third quarter on what looked like a really innocent play bethel thompson backs up he's looking at ricky collins jr his pass just gets uh tipped i think it was lacombo that tipped it and uh, Guachum ends up uh, catching it, lands right in his lap. And it's, you know, if a defensive end 
catches an interception. It was already sort of a 50-50 thing, and it just fell like right into his hands. He didn't even know the ball was there, and he runs it 33 yards untouched into the end zone. And now BC is up 21-20, and they just didn't even feel in the game at that point. But there they are winning at the at the end of the third quarter. The game, the the game to me, like going on that pick, the game to me sort of highlighted three significant issues the Argos have. Uh, the first being red zone efficiency, um, one of the most important metrics for a quarterback is is a quarterback a 2020 quarterback meaning they can move the ball between the 20s no problem but when the field gets short they're no good and a lot of mediocre quarterbacks are 2020 quarterbacks and uh, the red zone is an issue for McLeod and the Argos so I thought that came up um, you know for sure I thought that the game also highlighted that McLeod doesn't seem to have any chemistry with one receiver. You know, if you look at most teams, there's a guy on the quarterback and that's your go-to guy. And, and, you know, he's racking up 120 every game and you're looking for him every time. And I really feel like, I hoped it would be Daniels, but I really feel like McLeod has not made that chemistry with a receiver. And I think it's really important for him, you know, for him to, to be able to do that. And then the third is, that the defense allows touchdowns through the air. And I thought all three of those consistent issues really came up in this game. I, I don't think this game was like a one-off weird. I thought it was like, no, these are these are issues that, that need to be cleaned up before the playoffs. I think some of the things that you addressed maybe started to mend themselves a little bit. There were two plays in particular in the red zone where I thought McLeod Bethel-Thompson made great plays. And I, I know he struggled. And I, I've talked about his, his issues with two-point conversions because that's not an area of the field that caters to his strengths. When that field gets really short, it takes away a lot of what he does well. But he had that beautiful two-point conversion that we'll talk about a bit later. He did have that touchdown pass to Diverse Daniels. And in terms of finding a receiver, I do feel kind of like Curly Gittins Jr. is his guy. And he didn't go off for huge yardage today, but he did connect on five out of six targets with Curly Gittins Jr. And and Diverse, he connected on six out of seven. Neither of those guys went for huge yards, but that's kind of the, the defense that BC was playing. They were... They were playing that deep shell that everybody likes to play uh, against McLeod Bethel-Thompson. And I thought his accuracy to those guys in particular, six for seven to Deveris, five for six for Curly Gittins Jr. And I guess you could throw in three for four to DJ Foster. But after yeah, that, you'd like I, someone else to step up, I guess. I need I need Deveris to be the I need Deveris to be the one. I need him to be, I know it's a broken record. I need him to be the star. And he hasn't been that yet. And, and I feel like, their relationship needs to be more like to, that. Tavares is getting nine, ten targets a game, and most games is going ninety to one ten, just like other teams' ones. I think Tavares is a one, but he doesn't play like a one. He plays like a three, fifty yards, six catches. It's like that. That's not a one. I want to see him and Tavares be like the other pairings around the league, where teams are game planning for it but also we're able to get around their game plan and that's an absolute weapon so that's that's what i would like to see more of one of the big differences for diverse today was that they moved him into the slot 
a few times, which we haven't seen a lot. He's typically an outside guy, but missing Eric Rogers these last several weeks, they have had to find ways to move guys around. And they were so short this week, banged up at receiver, where you had Drez Anderson making his his first uh, career game that he's dressed for, making his first career catch. Uh, he only, he was only able to connect with Anderson on on two of six passes. Uh, and that, but that that's not surprising. They haven't had a ton of time together. Anderson's been there from the first day of training camp, but he hasn't been with the ones. He doesn't have that chemistry. McLeod overthrew Anderson a few times, came up short on one. I think Anderson had a drop in there too. He's also got Tommy Neal out there uh, as a yeah, receiver. Like, Deion Pellerin like was targeted twice. Like they targets, were they were really banged up at that position. Those targets need to go to Daniels. I want I want eleven, twelve targets. I don't want six targets to Anderson. That's that's way too many. And if if you know, like he's open, of course he's open. They're giving you that. Like that's no good. You as an offense can't be like, well, we'll just take this. It's like no, they're giving you that. They're like throw to Anderson. I I want the offense to be like, how are we going to scheme up twelve targets to Daniels, where we're just going to feed this guy? Um, I you know I really hope to see that. So as the fourth quarter gets underway, Boris Beattie adds another field goal, this one from 22 yards. And this is where I start getting upset at some of these field goals that Boris Beattie had. So the the issue I have is that I don't want to see the 50 the yarders are amazing. And this is nothing on Boris Beattie. It's on the team. And it's kind of speaks to what you said about red zone issues. Boris, you don't want to see 15 yard field goals and 22 yard field goals. Those those need to be touchdowns. Now, there was a bit of a turning point that I think happened in the fourth that I, I don't know if a lot of people remember, maybe it doesn't stand out, but Coach Dinwiddie challenged a missed OPI call oh. that I thought was not worth a challenge. The ball fell incomplete, so it was going to be second down and 10 anyway. Coach Dinwiddie threw his challenge flag. I just felt like, I, I actually did think there was a good chance it would be overturned because I thought it was offensive pass interference. But they never call it. That's the thing. It never gets called the same way. It's supposed to get called the same way. It never gets called the same way. And I just think it's too big a risk not to have that flag in your pocket, to lose your challenge for when you need it. And there's so many other things that are happening later on in the game, opportunities where you're like, yeah, you probably could have challenged that. Or maybe there was a penalty there, but we never know because uh, the challenge was gone. So I thought that was just a, I thought that was a poor decision. And I know that, was it, I think it was Tristan Deku that was, that was interfered with. And, and he was, and he was outraged by it. He was really upset. He had his arms in the air, and he's right. But I think that's a, a, an occasion where Coach Jim Woody has to know that it's not like it was a completed pass. It's not like it was OPI that led to a 40-yard catch. It was going to be second down and 10. I think you don't challenge that. Save your challenge and see if you can get them to punt on the next play. Yeah. Now, I mean, it was unfortunate because like, it didn't work out. You know, it's like blocking the backs on running plays, right? Like, <laughs> they don't call that either. It's just one of those things where the football world has decided, that's fine, and this is fine, and we're going to just move forward. Exactly. So we get down to the end of the game, or what should have been the end of the game, and this is where things start getting a little crazy. So... Uh, Toronto uh, hits a field goal uh, to go up 23-20. And then suddenly BC drives down the field. Uh, There's a minute remaining. And now we get what looks like it might be the winning field goal attempt. 53 seconds left. It's a long one, though. It's it's a 50-yarder. 
and uh, it ends up uh, getting blocked. Uh, and I, I believe it was uh, Dexter McCoyal who got his hand on it. He just jumped out of the building, got a hand on it. Uh, field goals blocked. It um, it ends up uh, getting brought out of the end zone by, by Chris Edwards. And this is where things got weird. So there's 45 seconds left on the clock now. And Coach Dinwiddie calls for victory formation. McLeod Bethel-Thompson takes a knee for a two-yard loss. And the clock stops. And why it's so weird is that there wasn't great communication in stadium. The referee's mic was was not working for us. I don't know if it was heard on the broadcast that well, but in stadium, no one in the press box realized that a timeout was called. So BC had a timeout left and called it. Now, Coach Dinwiddie should have known that BC had a timeout left, and he, he did not know that they had a timeout left. That was the first question asked of him after the game in the post-game press conference, you know, what happened? And be- before we even got to that, he, he addressed it, and he basically said, yes, I did not know that BC still had a timeout. I thought they didn't. I called victory formation. I saw 45 seconds left. That's sort of the magic number for when you know that you can take a knee with no, with no timeouts remaining. And... Someone's got to catch that. And between the, you know, he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to bring up anyone else. He wasn't going to throw any assistant coaches under the bus. Uh, And I think he well could have, but he decided, no, that's, that's on me. And ultimately it is as the head coach, he's got to know that. And as the play caller, um, but yeah, he, he didn't realize that. And not only that, the second kneel down was called in before they even realized that the clock hadn't ticked off the first time. And so they didn't have a play. They had to kneel down the second time. And now suddenly everyone in the stadium, there's a murmur and everyone's realizing that, oh my goodness, Toronto's going to have to punt the ball back with time left for BC. As that was going on, JB, what was going through your head? Because I've seen this play out before. Uh, in in my own games, and I was sort of reliving nightmares I've experienced watching Coach Dinwiddie. Yeah, uh, it was it was frustrating because you could see that they had mucked it up. Um, I had sort of half tuned out and was working on some things um, because you know this game is over. Um, unfortunately, the TSN broadcast also in their bug does not indicate how many timeouts a team has. Um, I'm not going to totally kill him on it. He is a first-year coach. You know, you're going to have things that occasionally happen to a first-year coach uh, that are not going to happen to somebody who's coached for 15 years. So, you know, I think... I think that's okay. You know, I I mean, it nearly cost them the game. It didn't. It's easier for me to be magnanimous about it because it didn't cost them the game. But uh, lesson learned and, you know, probably need another voice in your in your headphones uh double checking that stuff that's probably one of the drawbacks of being head caller you know head head coach and and play caller is is you don't have that sort of redundancy where you know coach they have a timeout we're gonna need to do this so it's good it's good to run into that and get away with the win and now you fix that moving forward on your coaching staff so i i take that as i'd rather have it happen now you know, then in the Grey Cup, oh. <laughs> right? I mean, Saskatchewan, you know what I'm talking about. They do. Yeah, so yeah. That's, that's the way I look at it. I, and I agree. I, I would defend him on this in that it's he's a first-year head coach, and yes, he's a pro head coach. Yes, it's in the CFL. Yes, it's, it's inexcusable, and yet it happens a lot. Uh, you know, Coach Barker talked on the TSM broadcast about having had that 
happen to him. Um, I've, I've had it happen to me as well. I'm not a professional coach, but you know, I, it's situations like that that do come up and they only come up once. You know, I never made that same mistake again. I'm sure Coach Barker did not make that mistake twice. I promise you, Coach Dinwiddie will not make that mistake twice. What I like about Coach Dinwiddie, and it's something that I like about him generally, is that his ego isn't too big. He immediately took full responsibility, but not only that, he had already apologized to his entire team and basically said, we could have lost this game and and that would have been my fault. I messed up. That's up to me and I made a mistake and I'm sorry for it. I'm sorry I almost cost you the game. And I think a lot of coaches don't do that. A lot of coaches don't want to admit they're wrong. They don't want input from players. They don't want um, you know people to ask questions. And Coach Dinwiddie is never like that about any of these things. He's always very upfront. I think that's one of the best things about him. I think that's why his players like playing for him. And I think he handled the situation well. He knows how big a, a mistake this was, and he wasn't going to shy away from it in the least. He was the first thing he addressed, um, as I said in the press conference. And and I think it's not that you give him a pass on it, but I think you I think you understand that th- this does happen. And and especially for I know he's played in the CFL and he's coached in the CFL for a long time, but as just as an American looking at that scoreboard and seeing forty five seconds left, it just seems like well this is you know this is this is time. And you know that that number especially that is the magic number. It's forty five when there's no timeouts. It's twenty five when you've got one timeout. Uh, and you know, that's just something that he saw the forty five and there was just. Uh, that, I do wonder like blip. at the professional level. I assume because I know at the high school level, you know the referees at the three minute warning give you a timeout count for both teams. And I do wonder if if they, I guess they don't do that at the professional level. Yeah, and I, it's the same thing with with semi pro as well. Uh, high school and semi pro, I've always had referees come over just to remind you because the scoreboards don't display that um, at those levels. But the yeah, scoreboard maybe. at BMO doesn't display that either. You don't see an indicator of how many timeouts teams have remaining, and that's something that. It's interesting, and you mentioned that it doesn't show that on the broadcast too, whereas typically in a lot of the American broadcasts, I, I don't think Fox does it, but I think the I think the other networks do show timeouts remaining. Um, and even even when you're following along on on uh, on the web, on like ESPN's, um, uh, whatever that feature is called, where you can kind of follow along play by play, it shows you how many timeouts are remaining, which is a really handy tool. Now, all that said, the coaches need to know. They need to ask. They need to find out. They need to be sure before you take a knee. You better know how many timeouts they have. But <laughs> it, it worked out. But that, man, that was a, a nail-biting end of game. And it was so weird in the press box because nobody understood what had happened. They saw that no time went off the clock, but we didn't see a timeout getting called. And so no one knew what had gone on. And suddenly there was Toronto punting. Not only are they punting deep in their own end, it gets returned. And right at the end of the game, you have a 37-yard field goal, again, a 37-yard field goal that that uh, Camacho has, this time for the win, because there's no time remaining, and it goes out the back of the end zone for a single, which ties it up, but I thought that was curtains. Especially when, when you have a close field goal like that, not only is it an easier kick, and thank God their kicker was no good, but it also basically takes any rouge defense out of play, because the ball goes out of the end zone in the air. So if you're if you're kicking from 45 or 50, you probably can play rouge defense because it's not going to bounce out of the end zone. So that's the other aspect of the of you know pitting them. Yeah, I thought for sure. I thought, my God, I he. I mean, I'm sure Dinwiddie is having nightmares tonight about it because as a coach, 
you know, one of the things about coaching, if anybody out there has ever coached uh, at any level, to feel like you cost your team the win is devastating. I, I can't overstate how, and I mean, that's at any level, how emotionally um, impactful that feeling is. So I'm, I'm very happy that Dinwiddie doesn't have to feel it. And they did sort of have Rouge defense in there, but not Max. So like they they were going to send out the package on that 50-yarder that we thought might be a, a crucial one where they didn't want to allow a Rouge. Uh, Beattie and uh, I can't remember who else, but three guys jogged onto the field as that sort of Rouge defense team. But there was too much time left with 50 seconds left. You actually don't want to punt the ball out. Of, you actually almost no. want to concede the Rouge there because if the, the problem is with 50 seconds left, if you punt the ball out, and you punt it out of bounds, well, now it's their ball on like the 20. And so it's it's a worse scenario. So those guys started to jog out and Coach Nelson called them all back. I think he was prepping them and uh, realized that, no, this is not the right situation. But for that end of game, uh, they had, I think it was Beattie that was out in the far corner of the end zone. Uh, and then they had Edwards standing in the middle of the end zone, but it, it didn't, it wasn't a factor because since it was such a short field goal, it just cleared the end zone. Uh, yeah, wide I, right. I couldn't tell on the replay. I, I, to be honest, I was like, eh, I'm not totally sure that the Rouge defense people knew that they were Rouge defense. Uh, <laughs> I can't tell the angle. Maybe the ball was really high, and that's why they made no attempt at all to jump for it. <laughs> but it certainly felt like they felt like it was like practice, and they were the people that like you know stand at the back of the end zone to grab the ball. It, it didn't look like that from my angle. I didn't think that he had a chance to get to it. Yeah, that's what I mean. So looking at it, yeah, I assume, because because they just sort of looked at it, I assumed it must have been 10 feet over their head. And then over time, the Argos went right, like got right back to business. It was it was pretty amazing. They uh, The old Joe started, Flacco P.I.? Well, it... It was it was it was it was there though. Like they they actually looked back in gear again, and the PI call was blatant PI. The defenders weren't looking around. McLeod Bethel Thompson took a shot for Chandler Worthy. He was interfered with. Balls down in the one. Pipkin runs in a QB sneak for a touchdown. I, and I want to just call a quick timeout here uh, with uh, this QB sneak thing because it occurred to me in the game watching Michael Riley QB sneak for the Lions. It drives me bonkers that the Argos QB sneak is a roll of the dice every single time even when Pipkin's in there and when McLeod Bethel Thompson's in there QB sneaks at most for the Argos seem to get a yard and sometimes they lose a yard sometimes they get nothing I feel like every other team can always get that yard I feel like quarterback sneaks are one of the things that the Toronto Argonauts are the worst at and it didn't haunt them today but it just felt like such it just feels like such an effort on a play that comes so easily for every other team in the league, I feel. Now Pipkin did get in, but barely. And there were a few uh, other quarterback sneaks that were barely converted first downs. And Michael Riley was just not really having that issue. No, they got they have to get better at that for sure. And and that's a line thing. That's that's not so much the quarterback finding the lane. I think they're actually pretty good at looking for it, but there's just got to be a bit more explosion. And they, unfortunately, that that's not the the strength of the interior line. That's not what they're best at. And so, it it uh, it, it is tough. And and they've know they know to load up on Bladek because that's sort of where you're looking. He's the best 
Um, he's probably the best off the line in terms of that push. Nicastro's not bad too, but uh, it's a little harder with your center because they're a little bit later to react because they've got a snap. And typically you've got somebody diving right under them as they snap the ball. But anyway, they do get the touchdown. And that two-point conversion play was a beauty. McLeod Bethel-Thompson completes a pass to Dion Pellerin, who's wide open in the back of the end zone. And with all the drops that the Argos had today, it was great to see the backup fullback, Dion Pellerin, the rookie, out there securely bringing in the football. He immediately turned away so that he wasn't going to take any contact. And uh, it put the Argos up eight Yes, the Lions come back to score a touchdown on their possession, but they do not complete their two-point convert pass, and the Argos win 31-29, and we all breathe a sigh of relief, especially Coach Dinwiddie. Yeah, I mean, it it was it was okay. It, it was it was it was an okay finish. You'd love if if the goal is the playoffs. You'd love to see things be tighter there like i i I wasn't crazy about the blitz uh in overtime you know in general i'm not crazy about red zone blitzes uh i'd rather just play like four man and you know play good man coverage and and play it like that i think i think when you when you send heat in that zone like every time you send heat it's russian roulette and as a rule as a defensive coordinator like sending heat's a gamble um Depending on the team, and because like we're we're not particularly good at heat, you know there are teams like when Winnipeg sends heat, it's pretty good because it's 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 like a tidal wave, uh, but our heat is not a tidal wave, so you have to think like pros and cons. Like okay, we're gonna send this heat, but are we gonna get there? Because we don't get there very often. So what? Who's gonna be left open? when we send this heat. So I don't know. I, I get the instinct and the desire, but it's not, it's not who we are. We are not a quarterback scene, a quarterback sack defense. So not that I would ever suggest that to coach Jones, but maybe, maybe less, less heat. One of the problems the Argos have with cover zero is that when they, when they, when they send everybody and they're, and they're in cover zero, they they have a really they leave a really big cushion, so it's not like they're up there playing press. They're they're way back because that that bend but don't break umbrella that they they love to go to so much. They still sort of maintain that philosophy within cover zero. There's so much space, and so like we saw on that, I'm not positive that was zero on that play. I'd have to rewatch to see, but um, but they they were way off the receivers, and of course Michael Riley hits that that hot route, and there's all sorts of room for not only the receiver to make moves but there's room for guys to set up blocks too and so he was able to run all the way into the end yeah. zone over I mean, 30 yards they they had seven in the box they sent six one dropped out um you can't tell on the broadcast with the the numbers um and and one thing i don't want to bag on cfl broadcasting but i do notice a contrast from watching the nfl is uh, they don't talk about the players who make the plays uh, on CFL broadcasts. They just talk about like good tackle, but they don't tell you who made the tackle. Where in the NFL broadcast, you get names and numbers every play. But uh, yeah, he looked like looked like they had a guy there to take the underneath crosser, and he just got too excited about watching the blitz. 
So let's get to our players of the game, JB. I'll start off for our offensive player of the game. For me, it's Tavares Daniels. I, I think that that touchdown early on was really key to sort of set the tone. And I know things did fall apart a little bit later, but that play was huge. And it was great to see him get more involved than he has been and certainly taking in more targets uh, yeah, than I he mean, typically does. I was happy he was able to score that touchdown before he had to leave. <laughs> he well, he he was he was the most targeted receiver on the team, and I know it's not the eleven twelve targets that that you unreasonably are well, requesting. But he was, he was double booked, so I understand. Look, we're all busy people. Seven targets, six receptions, only fifty one yards, but he did have that touchdown. And yeah, I, I thought uh, I I don't think I can find another offensive player of the game. It's it's much easier on the BC side when you've got Brian Burnham, who is like, you know, five for five, 96 yards and a touchdown. And, you know, defensively, I think Lacombo had like 10 tackles you and know a what? sack and uh, uh, two sacks. It, it wasn't like super impactful, but DJ Foster had a nice game. He had 90 yards uh, from scrimmage, a couple of big plays to kind of juiced up the team. Um I, th- I think he's worth a shout at anyways. I thought I thought he had a nice game. Is he your player of the game or are you no. selecting two? No, no. I just I, I I'll say something about <laughs> DJ Foster before you select yours. He got a lot more carries than he typically does when John White is in there. White ended up with 11 carries for 39 yards, 3.5 a carry. Foster, nine carries for 65 yards, uh, 7.2 a carry. They, they did go with him. And there was room. One of the, my halftime adjustments that I tweeted out was... There's the left side of the Argos line was beating up the BC line in the run game, but they hadn't run that way. They were running wide so much. And then in the second half, they did start following uh, in behind that left side. And that's where there was a lot of yardage uh, for, for both backs. Yeah, but, they, yeah, DJ Foster had a, had a great game. The, the Argos definitely need to work on that too. They need to find a balance. I, 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 I'm not one of those people where you need 50-50. If the run's not working, get rid of it. I agree, but <laughs> you can't just say that every game you play. At a certain point, you gotta be like, "Hey, we got we gotta fix this. We can't just go into every game saying, well, we're incapable of running, so we're not gonna try to run.'" Um, okay, I, I would say my offensive player is uh, Boris the Boot. Yeah, that's fair because we don't have a category for special teams, and so I think special teams in this case, being Boris, fits yeah, into offense. You know what? I yeah. thought, and I bag on the returning a lot. I thought Worthy had a had a good game. He had a couple of nice breaks, he but did. Boris, you know, look, he finished those offensive drives, and he he bailed out the offense when they got stalled in the red zone, and he won the game. You know, he had fifteen points. So he, for me, he's the offensive player of the game. For defensive player of the game, uh, I'm going to go with Sam Machampong. Uh He he had a great game. He looked really good. The defensive line in, in general played well, but yeah, he ended up with four solo tackles. He had his first ever sack. And talking to him after the game was funny. He was the only one of all the of all the Argos that, that came out for, for questions in the press conference. He was the only one that actually had a smile on his face. And it's because he was so happy to be able to get his first sack he had a bunch of guys that he played with at Laurier that were out there watching the game too and for him to to cash in and get that sack but it almost wasn't because remember there was that flag thrown and it was reviewed he ended up getting credited with that sack but he came down with this sort of uh chop 
but it didn't make contact with uh, with Michael Riley's head. And I think that was the allegation. But yeah, he just had this huge bull rush up the middle. Uh, it was it was a great play. Uh, he was being double teamed off the snap and he ended up getting in there for the sack. But yeah, he couldn't have been happier in that postgame press conference going to the playoffs, got a win. And in his, you know, he, he played a great game. Yeah. And, and the stat crew gave him the field goal block. Oh, that's interesting, because uh, I I definitely saw it as Dexter McCoyle with the that. Field I mean, McCoyle block. definitely jumped out of the gym. Uh, I couldn't tell on the replay who touched it, but for you know they gave it to a Chimpong, so I think he he probably was feeling pretty juiced about that too. <laughs> yeah, I'd feel good if I got credit for a yeah, field goal block he, he, that I didn't. He played fantastic. Block. I mean, you know, he's come late and he's absolutely made himself into, uh, uh, you know, a, a starter, which is fantastic. Yeah, if you've got Canadians starting on the defensive line, it's it's a good thing. And he's young; uh, he's a rookie, so awesome. Yeah, yep. that's that's a that's a great player of the game. Where, where are you also going at Champong for defensive player of the game? I, I think so. I, I mean, I thought McCoyle had a good game, like he usually does. Edwards still, I don't know where my guy is. He's not 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 flowing like he did before. Um, so uh, yeah, I would go at Champong. I thought I thought he played fantastic. And, uh, you know, the fact that he's made himself into a starter is, is great news. And, uh, you know, a couple other guys that kind of dropped off a little bit, probably because they were carrying the load so much in the early days. Um, so, yeah, Chempong is, is my call, too, for defensive player. Where are you going for play of the game? Mm. Uh, I think the play of the game, the, what, what should have been the play of the game was the field goal block. Would have been awesome. The field goal blocked to win the game before they kind of spilled strawberry jam all over the, the portrait. Um, so I'm going to go with the field goal block because it, it probably got in the kicker's head when he was kicking and, uh, you know, maybe worried about somebody jumping through. So maybe he tried to hit the ball higher. Anything that can get the kicker adjusting what they do normally is, is going to help. So I, I think that probably helped him missed the field goal again so so let's go with the field goal block for my play of the game i'm going to go with the two-point conversion play right at the end so this play was an rpo and the design of this play is that the defensive end is the guy that mcleod bethel thompson is watching and so if the defensive end crashes down to the running back mcleod's supposed to pull the ball and he's going to roll right with it and he can either then run it into the end zone himself or throw it out to Dion Pellerin, which is what he chose to do. And talking to McLeod after the game about this play, he says they installed this seven weeks ago, and they have been waiting to run it, and there just hasn't been that opportunity. But this was the perfect opportunity. Here's a two-point conversion where they feel like they've got the right matchups. And they had had success in the second half running the ball um, a little bit. So the the defensive end crashed down uh, to try and take out the running back. McLeod pulled. He saw as he this was all going on, he saw Dion Pellerin leaking free into the secondary on that corner route. He rolled out a couple steps and just lofted one up nice and easy for Dion Pellerin, who makes a great catch and <laughs> hangs onto that ball. He probably still has not let go of that football. Uh, but yeah, what a play for the rookie to bring that in and what ended up being the winning two points. That's yeah. my play of the game. You know, or as, as Chris Berman would call him on primetime, Marcel Dion Pellerin. He probably would. 
Well, that will just about do it for us on this episode of the X's and Argos podcast. Make sure you check out xsandargos.com where you can find JB's report card for this game and all sorts of other good stuff coming up later on this week. For JB, this is Ben Grant saying so long and may all your pre-snap reads be good ones. I'll see ya. Fight the 